Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, this is Dr. Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doc. Uh, Well, lots of big news this week. In fact, as I was uh, browsing around the internet, one fact, one story just kept coming up over and over and over. So before we even launch into this week's topic, I have to ask, did you hear about Peloton stock and Mr. Big? No, I, I did. I did. I heard about it. That was, I, I think that's entirely unfair. <laughs> you have like a fictional death, like that's what tilts the stock market. People do not listen to me when, that when I say that, like, oh, it's just gambling for grown up people. So for those of you wondering what's going on, uh, if you are a watcher, I guess, of the new Sex in the City series, <laughs> apparently in one of the early episodes, longtime character and love interest of Samantha? Yeah. Uh, of Samantha. Oh, okay. Whoever. <laughs> Whatever. The lead one. The, the, the one whose voice you see at the beginning. Sarah, Sarah Jessica Parker. Sarah Jessica Parker. Who, anyway, doing uh, just a workout on a Peloton. <laughs> has a cardiac arrest, drops dead. The very yeah. next day, Peloton stock drops by like 12 <laughs> points. So, so Satosh, let's take a moment and answer the burning question. Is this possible? Can oh, God. It, can exercise quite literally kill you? <laughs> 
Oh, man. I'm going to take just a hot second to uh, go ahead and correct your pronunciation because it's Peloton. <laughs> Peloton? No. <laughs> Peloton. So tell us about let's the Peloton bike. Let's call the Peloton. You know how on pretty much every piece of equipment that you buy, there's usually a disclaimer or something on either the user's manual or there's a sticker on the side that says, before in engaging in any activity, please consult your physician. Like, have you seen that before? No, but we all know I don't exercise. What? <laughs> yes, of course I've seen it. <laughs> For a second, I was like, oh, I don't exercise. You mean like demons? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, sorry, my brain went to weird places. No, there are conditions where you shouldn't be doing heavy exercise. As a for instance, okay, if you have been diagnosed with a uh, certain types of arrhythmia where intense aerobic exercise where you're really getting your heart pumping puts you at risk for your heart uh, pumping in an abnormal rhythm and then, you know, going into an arrest for an electrical reason. Um, there are cases where you have um, angina. Um, if you have, uh, you know, not, a, not quite a heart attack, but you have uh, coronary artery disease to a certain extent and it hasn't been corrected either by bypass or stent. Um, and, usually at this point, your physician lets you know. But I think, Josh, one of the famous examples that you and I grew up with in medical school is the person who's had long-term chest pain. They haven't gone to see their doctor. And every time they exercise, they get chest pain. And then they do something intense like in the wintertime, shoveling snow in their driveway, right? Lots of cardiac activity, heavy load on your on your heart. And that, you know, your heart is trying to work its best. It runs out of oxygen and, you know, they fall over and die in the snow. So, yes, there are cases like this, but the general public, like if you're otherwise healthy and stuff, you should exercise. So long story short, he would have to have pre-existing medical conditions. Just being on a bike is no more likely to kill you than walking down the street. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Although, I... uh, as you may have guessed from our lackadaisical attitude, it is, I got a word today calendar, uh, it is oh, <laughs> an alternate week. I'll be honest, Santosh, we haven't had an alternate week for like three weeks now. <laughs> no, no, that's true. There, the We've been skipping alternate weeks. <laughs> we've been alternating yeah. alternate weeks, but... Yes, absolutely. But as it is an alternate week... Because I say so. It's time for everybody's favorite segment. <laughs> Journal Club! Yay! <laughs> and, yeah. and this week, the theme is uh, sci-fi movies. There's a new Matrix film coming out. So I thought we would uh, look at some of the different medical stories and re-enter the Matrix ourselves. So all the stories this week could come straight out of a sci-fi movie. Uh, yeah, which, by the way, we love to do. If you go back, new listeners especially, and you go back and you listen to previous episodes, this isn't anything new for us. It's just that we're putting all the sci-fi type of stories in one spot. So, Santosh, before we get into like some of the even more outrageous ones, why mm -hmm. don't you start by telling us, uh, does your chewing gum lose its flavor 
if your taste buds from COVID go bland overnight, right? That's that's how the song goes, isn't it? I, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Does chewing gum that. lose its flavor on the COVID overnight? No. Maybe. Oh, okay. this really put your uh, th- that particular song in your head, and we did some throwbacks to uh, '80s gum commercials, which I was absolutely loving. Let me start with Dr. Uh, Henry Danielle, a PhD, Vice Chair, and W.D. Miller Professor in the Department of Basic and Translational Sciences at Penn Dental Medicine in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So, yes, this is a dentist who led this beautiful story. Uh, I want to say this is not ready for prime time, but the underlying premise here, Josh, is you could chewing gum your COVID away. With chewing gum, you can do something absolutely ingenious right in the mouth. So you don't have to ingest anything. Nothing has to go systemic. And so the premise here is not necessarily to prevent worse uh, clinical you know, decompensation or anything like that from COVID. This is really to stop transmission so that if you caught COVID, you could lower the amount of virus in your mouth. And so if you're coughing, sneezing, anything like that, even if you weren't wearing a mask, you would reduce the chances of transmitting. Uh, this is absolutely not ready for prime time. And this was a basic sciences paper in a molecular therapy, which is in cell press. But here's the idea. So SARS-CoV-2, which is the agent of COVID-19, binds with its spike protein into one of our receptors called ACE2, okay, ACE2 receptor. And they thought, hey, you know what? If you bind up the virus by actually just having free ACE2 somewhere, well, then that virus actually kind of becomes inactivated because the spike protein part is buried in a, in a receptor and now it can't invade any cells. It can't replicate. And if you have your normal immune system, it'll sweep it up and it'll go away. So they said, okay, let's take some micro bubbles and that kind of a thing and mm-hmm. coat it with uh, ACE2, all right, and go ahead and see if you if you expose the virus to these little micro bubbles, if you can inactivate the virus. So, of course, Josh, this wasn't clinical, so they didn't have anybody actually chewing this chewing gum, you know, in its regular way. What they did was they used simulated virus and spike protein and neutralization assays in this paper to actually show that you could take COVID from um, actually from, you know, a a donor. So like a a sample from a sick patient and then, you know, inoculate it with this chewing gum substance and then take that combination and test to see whether the uh, subsequent you know, virus out of there could bind to cells, could invade, could replicate, or if they were... Basically, these researchers found that when they, you know, added these proteins, which we'll get to in a second, they added these proteins, Mm -hmm. that the levels of viral RNA in saliva fell to undetectable levels. So we're we're starting with the assumption that salivary levels correlate with severity, which... Uh, No, no, no. There is some association in yeah, terms of yeah. viral load and, and saliva, but that's that's the first kind of assumption with these. And they hypothesize, therefore, that this gum might help 
reduce transmission by decreasing the viral load of saliva. And in order to do it, my favorite part is it's proteins bioencapsulated in the chewing gum are stable and fully functional for several years, which I know they're talking about (laughs) shelf life, but all I can think is, oh, good. So then when I swallow the gum, I'll be protected for the next (laughs) several years instead of having to get boosters every X number of months. No, no. (laughs) All right. Stop. Everyone stop. Not remotely how it works. Okay, so the major goal here is actually to lower the amount of virus that's in your saliva so that you're much, much less likely to transmit. So not to stop you from getting more sick, because at that point, once there's virus and RNA kind of being expressed in your saliva, you've probably already contracted the illness and there are going to be other downstream consequences. So it's not going to help with that. So if it's in your stomach, if it's your intestinal tract, Number one, Josh, first, if you have had COVID, then those ACE2 proteins are going to get saturated, right? They're going to sponge up about as much COVID as they can. And then that's it. They're not going to suck up anymore. Um, Number two, it's not going to be preventing anything because sitting in the middle of your intestines, uh, there's no COVID for it to act on over there. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I said that I burst their bubble. Uh, so we can't even get people to wear masks to prevent transmission to others, but you want to start getting people to chew gum to prevent transmission <laughs> to others. Okay. So, yeah. so in order to carry out this study, Dr. Daniel, Danielle reached out to Ronald Coleman at Penn Medicine, a virologist and critical care doctor whose team had, for reasons never explained been collecting saliva and other biospecimens from people with COVID-19, you know, throughout the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. This, and this long doctor just was just like, let's, know- just, let's just keep a collection of uh, COVID saliva. <laughs> just to let you know, there are biobanks like this all over the country and the planet because, you know, you want to be able to have samples just in case you have a research idea that you want to do. And it was uh, cinnamon <laughs> gum, which is why we were humming the Big oh. Red theme song earlier. <laughs> Uh, For those of you too young yes. to remember, there, you <laughs> there used to be a candy in your mouth you could chew and it advertised <laughs> on commercials. Yeah. And one of them was very catchy. Yeah. We, we really, we don't want to get any comments from any of you guys about like, what's big red, just YouTube it and leave us old people alone, please. Okay. <laughs> it lets you last a little longer. Longer with Not Big like Red. That. No. That's a different... That Big Red this. freshness gets right to it. So <laughs> according... But here's a problem with the study, Santosh. According to the okay. authors, previous uh-huh. studies have found that 48 different sugar alcohol compounds, including sorbitol, galactitol, mannitol, all bind to viral proteins, especially the VP40 right. protein, which yes. they're saying is the main target. So the presence of these sugars in the placebo gum may have explained some of the antiviral effects. So it could just be that chewing gum decreases the salivary load. We don't know. Right. Yeah. Uh, It may not be, again, it may not be statistically significant, but it may also not be something unique. Right. I think, though, the principle of what they demonstrated where they had these ACE2 proteins 
on these little micro bubbles is pretty cool in and of itself because in this particular case, they applied it to a model of chewing gum and saliva, but could it potentially be used for, just like you're saying, you know, if you can deliver those particles to the gastrointestinal tract or to the respiratory tract, it's got some cool potential to it. And the idea itself is really, really cool. I love it. A few other problems with the study, and it's important that every now and again, we tear these studies down as much fun as I have promoting them. (laughs) It is true. Um, With, with the, with the start, by the way, that this is way preclinical, right? This is all basic sciences. Yeah. So when asked about limitations to the research, they noted one, the study included only three patient samples. That's not really Mm -hmm. expandable. Uh, no, no, no. (laughs) Also, it was also unclear why nasopharyngeal swabs, the the nose-based test, was used for a saliva-based model and how chewing gum in the mouth (laughs) would affect a viral load at a close but other site such as your nose. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Um, However, he did note, again, as you said, that it does bind, seems to bind fairly well. So they want to enter clinical trials to evaluate gum safety. So this is the kind of, you know, antibiotic or antiviral chewing gum is something I'd expect to see. And as we said, demolition man. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think that imagine, would be totally cool. Yeah. Imagine the theme song, you know, like how does the taste and addition of ACE2 impair the gum's chewability? Uh, so breathe a little longer. Stay inoculated a little longer. Take this in one other kind of cool step, if you think about it, though, Josh. So ACE2 and spike protein on SARS-CoV-2 are best friends, right? But you could kind of put this principle to other viruses as well. So they could actually move this to, you know, when hopefully one day when COVID's long and gone, you could say, oh, could we actually put the proteins here to bind influenza or adenovirus or human metanumovirus? So that's just another cool thought. If you could engineer those particles to have whichever protein you want expressed on them and then incorporate them into the gum, it would be super cool. Yeah. So we'll have to see what ends up happening. Now, the next story is also pretty neat. Uh mm. But do you want the big buzzy headline or the pop culture movie reference? Ooh, uh, give me the pop culture movie reference and let me see if I can guess what the story is. So most recently, our next story you might have seen in something like the live action Cowboy Bebop, where a drug is made use of in the very first episode that's (gasps) done. Yes. Yes, Santosh, would you like to pick it up from here? Uh, oh, it's so creepy. And well, it's in the live action Cowboy Bebop, but of course it's in the anime as well. And it is creepy. It it feels, you know, the way that they show it and stuff, like a performance enhancer, upper methamphetamine type of thing. That It makes you super hyper, super aggressive, and your reflexes and everything super, super fast. But the way they deliver it is they put the capsule in this little like spray injector and they spray the drug onto their eyeball. It's so cre- And then you're, you guy, you get bloodshot eyes. So I think they actually call it bloody eye or something like or that. It's, eye, it's yeah. creepy. 
Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's creepy. Declining eyesight may be given a short-term boost by morning doses of seeing red. Now, this story I first oh. found on Science Alert, but let me give you the highlights, the abstract, as we call it, and then we can do a, a deeper dive. Okay. But a, a short burst of red light in the morning has been shown to improve declining eyesight, potentially providing... A simple, safe, and easy-to-use treatment for keeping our eyes sharp as we head into old age. You know, just stare into a laser. Uh, no, no. <laughs> tests, in no, tests no, no. on 20 participants, they were exposed to three minutes of 670 nanometer deep red light in the morning between mm-hmm. 8 and 9 a.m. And, and that's actually important. Uh, and they noted that after a week of this, on average... Eyesight improved by 17% for up to a week. Uh, in some of the volunteers, improvement was as much as 20%. Now, oh, okay. why is this so unbelievably cool? I mean, aside mm-hmm. from the fact that just seeing red, because we've actually done previous studies on animals that do show a link between red light and vision visual changes just from a wavelength. Okay. But, All right. but those studies were mostly, you know, single daily exposure. So this is looking at using a simple LED device like you would have on like your car keys or stuff like that. And morning exposure is key because this has to do with mitochondria and mitochondria have shifting work patterns and do not respond in the same way to light in the afternoon. Oh, so that's really interesting. So the mitochondria, of course, the powerhouse of the cell. So these little factories that make ATP, adenosine triphosphate, that power our cells, you're saying they have a schedule. They're morning people. They're more receptive <laughs> in the morning. And the okay. organelle, and what, by doing red light, uh, it recharges the organelles so they can produce more energy during the day. Oh, neat. This is so cool. I wonder, Josh, if this is, uh, and and this wasn't discussed, I think, in this particular study or anything like that, but I wonder if this is the converse of avoidance of blue light, which we do know has some harmful effects uh, in terms of keeping us awake and that kind of a thing at nighttime. So, it's advised right now to actually shift, you know, to more kind of red light as we fall asleep as well. But that's for a different reason. That's not for our eyesight. It's for kind of like our awake sleep pattern. Right. But cells in the human retina start to age once we hit the age of 40 or so. And part of that aging is caused by the slowing down of the mitochondria power supplies. They require more energy, so they tend to age faster. So in this, you take like a little tube that looks exactly like that Cowboy Bebop device and and hold it over your eye and just give yourself a quick little, you know, burst of red light. I like that the scientific study said it's probably safe to use as, you know, (laughs) 670 nanometers isn't much different from light found in the natural environment. The sure. the use of probably concerns me a touch. <laughs> uh, that that's always a worrisome thing to throw in there, and that's why we do these types of pilot studies in small numbers like this, and test safety as well as efficacy. So that's 
okay, it's, it's, it's worth it. And you can say probably in this small sample, I would venture to say, Josh, right now that we shouldn't be telling anybody to go ahead and try this. Like, I think that's a bad idea. No, don't just start staring into lasers. It won't give you superpowers. <laughs> It'll probably just drive you blind. Uh, but, <laughs> but what's another really good sci-fi topic uh, that we often see come up is reconstructing dreams, whether it's something like Inception, where you go into the dream, or you look at code on the Matrix, and you know, after a while, all I see is blonde brunette redhead <laughs> mm-hmm. thanks cypher I, I was actually i yeah absolutely i was thinking of uh what was just the schwarzenegger movie where they reconstructed the dream and you don't know if the movie's a dream or not oh you total recall one? total recall total recall yeah that was the one so in that one in that future we have computers that can kind of give you the neural stimulation to make full-scale dreams that Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. They actually, in, in total recall in the place where he goes, they actually make it as uh oh you know can't go on vacation well we can give you a vacation in your brain you know kind of thing yeah capitalism as its finest can't go on vacation we'll make you think you did um <laughs> absolutely and and from a similar high workaholic prone country japan sure sure uh-huh okay scientists have managed to turn dreams into short films so all the buzzfeed no. things are saying that MRIs can now recreate or read your dreams, which is not no. entirely accurate. So, yeah. you know, nobody's <laughs> going to nobody's going to stick electrodes on your head and instantly watch your thoughts play out action movie style. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> but the group designed its study based on the premise that brains react to seeing objects with repeatable patterns that can be measured with an MRI. So if a machine can learn to recognize the patterns well enough, and if patterns are repeatable across enough people, it can reverse engineer them, giving us a window into what's going on inside people's heads while they dream. Very cool. Okay. So just as a very simple example, okay. So if you use something like a uh, a red ball, 
Okay, so a red ball with about, you know, a six inch diameter, something like that. So you have a plain color, um, a shape that's recognizable, and, you know, even give it a little bit of movement, then to at least for one particular brain, you can teach the MRI to say, okay, when that shape appears in the visual field, looking in in this particular pattern, then we see these areas of the brain lighting up, you know, in, in this kind of pattern. And so feed that pattern back to the brain and the subject or the person will see a red ball. Now you're going to love this act the way they actually conducted the methodology of the study. And it, oh, this, is, this would okay, be what okay. I would call a limitation. Okay. Okay. Um, but they started with three participants were selected. So again, this is not really meant to be expandable at this point. It's a proof of concept. Mm -hmm. They were selected for a study and asked to sleep for several three hour blocks in an MRI scanner. Finding somebody who can just casually sleep in an MRI, let alone for three hours, is already going to limit your test subject pool. I just want to throw that out there. Once they fell asleep, scientists woke them up and asked them to describe <laughs> what they'd seen in their dream, grouping them into loose categories and subcategories like car, male, female, dwelling. Then the group picked representations of those categories from an online image search and showed them to the participants, once again, measuring their brain activity to figure out what patterns might be unique to that concept. Before okay, I go okay, on fair. to the third part, so that's part one is go to sleep. Part yes. two is wake up, wake up, wake up. Tell me about, <laughs> tell me about your dream. What do you remember? <laughs> what? I don't know. A car, an orange, a fish. Uh, okay. Uh, how about this fish from Google image, this car. Great. You've done all that. Now, here's a glass of warm milk. We want you to go back to sleep. And now a machine isn't going to record how the brain responds to dreaming. It's going to attempt okay. to match the patterns to one of the categories with a series of images. And there's a video of this taking place, which I will link in the show notes. It's actually really fun. Okay, okay. So sounds highly unscientific, right? Go to sleep, <laughs> wake up. What did you see? Then we get Google image involved. But that was all to create this baseline. Like, here's some of the patterns we want the brain to look for. So even okay, if they're right. off, like, you know, maybe they saw a car and they thought it looked like an apple. But as long as they consistently responded the same way, this would still hold true. So when matching the contents of the video to the categories the sleeper recounted when asked, the machine turned out to be right about 60% of the time. So better than random chance. Okay. All right. So not too, too much better, but kind of better enough. Yeah. Now, a lot of this involves uh, functional MRI scans. And this is a big area of study in Japan. And one of the authors of the paper had previously worked within this field. Uh, and apparently a group over in Berkeley is also trying to figure out how to crack the problem of recording dreams. So Inception may not be that far off. <laughs> yeah. Well... We've got a piece of it, okay? Because, and we should put this into context. When you dream, when you imagine all these kind of things, we don't really realize it all the time, but you're actually engaging 
all of your senses. So there are people who either in daydreams or in regular dreams, they will have not just sights, but sounds and smells. And there will be sometimes where emotions are evoked without a particular sensory stimulus. So this is really, really just, just the tip of the iceberg because we're going with a single modality and a single sense, which is sight. So not all the way to Inception because it'd be like silent movies. <laughs> well, one of the fun, creepy facts that I can never unlearn is that all the faces you see when you dream are real mm -hmm. faces that you have seen in your life. Our mind does not invent faces, whether it chooses not to or it can't, we don't know. But okay. every face that you see is uh, basically your sleeping brain recycling just, you know, maybe some dude you caught a glimpse of at the Starbucks or some girl on the bus or someone from your childhood like 12 years ago. But they're all real people. And now so an MRI sense. can help to recreate them. <laughs> except not really <laughs> right 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 so that i think would be a much more advanced type of application of this kind of a thing but even in a vague sense you know car male female dwelling the kind of thing that you talked about that's still pretty impressive and it's neat to just even explore this idea in this early sense and see where it can take us i like it now, the last one, I know, let's see, so far we've talked about improving your vision by staring into red lights, recreating your dreams from imaging studies, and chewing gum, curing infectious diseases, or at least treating them. Uh, okay, okay. This next study, I think, tops them all in no. terms of outrageous, <laughs> believability, <laughs> use to humanity, who knows? Uh, are, are you ready? Are you ready to hear the best headline? You're certainly going to hear this week. Maybe, maybe the best one you're going to hear this year. There's going to be, Josh, it's fair to say there is a specific cross section of our listenership that is going to be very excited by this result. Yeah. But not too excited. We don't want them to have any kind of uh, Peloton attacks. Oh, stop it with the Peloton. Just All right. Tell, All right. tell I them won't, about the other excitement. I won't hold back anymore. A giant <laughs> study finds Viagra is linked to almost 70% lower risk of Alzheimer's. Hell! <laughs> Just All right. take, a want, moment, you... take a moment to, to <laughs> marinate in that. No, enjoy don't marinate. It, enjoy it. Visualize it. Think about it. Okay. Now okay. let's talk about the study. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, it, in, in the process of talking about this study, let's go ahead and burst everybody's bubble. So, yeah. <laughs> this is based on okay. an analysis of health insurance claim data from over 7 million people. Yes. Okay. So this is a very, very large scale type of study, but it's an association study where you're not kind of looking into the people or the cases at all. You're really just taking 
diagnosis data from insurance companies. Okay, so that's that's the first part. So records showed that claimants who took the medication for whatever reason and Without going too deep into it, sildenafil, although we traditionally think of it as a uh, genital little helper, is Mm -hmm. also used to decrease the burden of pressure on the lungs when you have pulmonary hypertension. Right. And I'll actually tell people about another use that we have in pediatrics is actually to maintain physiology in cyanotic congenital heart disease, meaning that, uh, you know, when, when babies are born with a malformation of the heart, uh, sometimes you actually need to uh, keep that patent ductus arteriosus, the fetal circulation going, and you can do that with sildenafil and lower the pulmonary um, artery pressures as well so that the heart doesn't have so much pressure to beat against. So... That said, there's a wide variety of reasons why someone might be taking sildenafil. Um, mm-hmm. But of the ones who are, they showed people who took it were statistically significantly less likely to develop Alzheimer's over the next six years of follow-up compared to matched control <laughs> patients. Again, <laughs> this is not the same as proof of a causative effect. Correlation is not causation. Right. <laughs> but but the association is enough for people to suddenly say, hey, maybe Viagra could be a promising candidate drug to treat Alzheimer's disease. Right. So in that vein, on the basic sciences side of this particular paper, the authors actually took a look at sildenafil in a uh, a neuron model that they had and actually tested uh, what effect that it had. And they found that they got a little bit of like neurite growth and they decreased the, uh, the expression of phospho tau. So tau tangles are one of the pathologic signs. If you look under the microscope of Alzheimer's disease. So, they, they use these neuron models, which are, are, are with pluripotent stem cells, um, and they were able to see, oh, hey, sildenafil has kind of a, a beneficial effect on the growth of these neurons when we test it in kind of an Alzheimer's model in a Petri dish. So there might actually be a mechanism here. And they compared this against not only control drugs, but other drugs in the study that are commonly used in that same population, such as metformin, diltiazem, losartan, so things that you see in people who have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, things like that. Uh, So it's enough to initiate experiments on this. Uh, Yeah. Which which is (laughs) good, because at at last there's something to treat the last ignored medical population Aging men. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad someone's finally <laughs> paying attention. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The the it's, yeah. So, all right. Snark aside, just a little bit. Okay. 
We should mention that this is right now, it's just association, it's correlation, not causation. Although the, the, the Petri dish kind of experiment part of it is interesting and kind of promising. The mechanism makes a little bit of sense because you do have, you know, uh, blood pressure associated with Alzheimer's disease and whether there's a tie-in with like ischemia and, and the same types of things that we worry about with strokes, right? And so, you know, could you be kind of like replenishing blood supply or reducing blood pressure in the brain or to the brain or that kind of a thing? Um, that's possible. But Josh, I'll, I'll posit something else here, okay? In that if the people, okay, are with it enough, meaning that they do not have dementia, as in they are asking for Viagra from their, from their doctors or whoever is giving the medication, more than likely, okay, they're not going to have Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> so, it so that they be... can kiss a little longer. Oh, <laughs> gosh, stop a it. little longer. Stop. <laughs> What's the matter with you? <laughs> yeah, so exactly what you're saying, you gross, gross human being. <laughs> Hold yeah. tight a little longer. Yeah. <laughs> Should we? It, it doesn't help, by the way, that now Sildenafil actually does come in like a chewy candy form. Oh, <laughs> uh, damn it. Well, yeah. let's let's close out our our last sci-fi one by bringing some of the present day sci-fi. Uh, nowadays, streaming services exist for everything, right? You've got your Netflix, yeah. your Disney, your Hulu, your Paramount, your Cat Videos, your Shutter. Like, if if something exists, it has a streaming service. And you know who's getting in on that game? A new antibiotic subscription model. Oh, oh, thank God. Okay. All right. I I thought you were going to do one of your famous segues. <laughs> but I don't mean but I don't mean for the individual. You can't suddenly okay. just, you know, up and decide antibiotflix. Hey guys, yeah. I need a monthly supply of all the things. I'm planning on uh having extra loose stomach this month, you know, yes, and please yeah. please do not do that. Yes. <laughs> uh so with the introduction of all these you know superbugs the rise of superbugs here's the problem most insurance and healthcare management companies strongly encourage healthcare providers to stick to older cheaper drugs why because as we've covered in multiple previous episodes developing and bringing a new drug to market is expensive and highly risky for a number right. of reasons Oh yeah, and then with antibiotics, Josh, it's even more of a pain because as you are testing the antibiotic and developing it, a lot of the time resistance is developing in that window. So by the time you get the antibiotic out, there's already a big category of bacteria that will no longer respond to the drug that you actually made it for in the first place. So it's it's kind of a losing proposition on their end. Even with the expedited FDA process, like we've seen with COVID, it's still expensive to bring 
drugs to market and takes a long time. So a lot of drug companies basically don't want to do it. Most of them have closed their antibiotic research division because financially it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's it's kind of heartbreaking. And if you think this isn't still happening, one of the companies that just closed their antibiotic development programs is AstraZeneca, who even as recently as last year was instrumental in developing a DNA viral vaccine, has closed their antibiotic research and development program. Aww. They they actually, you know, made quite a few very, very important antibiotic strides. That's sad. A new act, so I'm going to give you the, the acronym first, and then I'll tell you what the idea behind it is. So something like this already exists in the UK, but a new bipartisan bill in Congress called the Pioneering Antimicrobial Subscriptions to End Mm -hmm. Upsurging Resistance, or Pasteur Act. Oh, that's pretty. I like that. Okay. Uh, the federal government would basically get a Netflix-style subscription with drug makers to develop and supply new antibiotics. So essentially, rather than what the government does now, which is pay for individual doses and then Medicare or Medicaid reimburse the provider for the doses used, the government would simply pay for the right to access an unlimited amount of antibiotics, presumably on a monthly basis. Maybe yearly. I don't know. Okay. Okay. I like that. Therefore, any beneficiary of a federal insurance program, including those covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and the VA system, would be able to access these drugs as needed without having to worry about, well, the same reimbursement model we currently have and drug companies (laughs) without having to worry about you know the amount sold simply getting a flat fee regardless of doses sold would be more inclined to invest in research and development to find new antibiotics very very cool okay so this incentivizes antibiotic kind of innovation and development and it looks like pretty much all around josh it fixes a lot of like cost payment type of problems that we currently live with. Well, I would okay. love to see this come to fruition. The idea of a Netflix subscription that, you know, can you imagine the government <laughs> just paging through like, ugh, I'm so sick of Flagyl. How about we get, uh, have we subscribed to Keflex? Are we getting penicillin? Are we on penicillin plus? <laughs> penicillin plus. So that just like what you said just now, You'd have to prevent against that, whether it was legislation or something else, because that would suck. You cannot, cannot have tears or anything like that in this. It has to be open because otherwise it would be like, oh, you know, if you want to pay extra, you can get the very broad antibiotics in case you do get a highly resistant. Would you like the international like package? It covers yeah. malaria and Ebola. The- <laughs> No, (laughs) I'm just I'm tickled by the idea. I think we could have a lot of fun with this in a in a sketch show kind of fashion. But that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions and feedback, especially through our new website, 
go check it out. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to further reading. If you'd like to learn more about some of the stories we talked about today, our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Exciting news, guys. We're starting to expand, and you may get to hear a couple advertisers or commercials coming up in the future. We promise, guys, nothing's going to change about the news and wackiness and insanity that we deliver to you. Uh, we're just going to see if we can uh, get paid for it. That's right, because doctors... <laughs> Don't have OnlyFans. <laughs> oh, God, please don't look that up. <laughs> I mean, maybe they do, but not these no, doctors. No, definitely not these so, doctors. <laughs> so until next time, as I'm always. I'm just scared as hell that they're going to find someone with your name, like someone with <laughs> Not only sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. So until next up. until next time, as <laughs> always, wash your hands, wear a mask, yeah. get your shot, find a country that is still open, and <laughs> if you can accomplish all that, happy travels. Don't forget to use a VPN. <laughs> <laughs>